Well, good morning to you all, and a happy new year, almost. So got one day to go. But I do hope, like Oliver was saying, 2017 was a blessed year for you, and certainly was for the church, and we're looking forward to many more blessed and exciting opportunities to come to serve and know the Lord in 2018 together as a church. Now, in particular, throughout most of 2017, we devoted our Sunday mornings to preaching through the book of Philippians, verse by verse, a beloved and cherished book by many. And pretty soon, though, probably starting around February, we'll begin to journey through another book in God's Word, verse by verse, and that book will be James. It's coming up pretty soon, and you can look forward to that. Today, though, and for the next several weeks, we're going to be getting into some of these Q&A sermons. It's something I like to do every now and then, and for some reason they seem to fit near uh, the end of the year, so they fit well there. Anyway, I've given you all the opportunity to submit some questions in advance, and uh, any question you can have about the Bible or about the faith in general. And the questions are in. The turnout was good. So we're going to start going through these questions today. Now, it's great to see some, some questions turned in by our youth. And in case you didn't know yet, they're certainly welcome to do that, to participate, especially since now our sixth graders and above are, are in the service with us. And so with youths in particular, their minds are just kicking into high gear and they're really starting to to wonder and, and question the world around them. They start to wonder why things are the way they are, and they even have a, an inquisitiveness about the faith in which they're being raised. And that's a good thing. That's nothing to be feared. Everyone has questions, and everyone should find answers. Christianity is not presented as a blind faith, but as a reasonable faith. And we don't believe because it's reasonable. Ultimately, we believe because God has made the light of Christ to shine in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, bringing us to faith. But that being said, it's still good to know that faith is reasonable. It exists according to knowledge and reason, not against knowledge and reason. And so accordingly, for example, the Apostle Paul, he would do what in the synagogues when he was sharing Christ with people? He would then reason with them from the Scriptures. He would stick around and he would contend for the faith that he was sharing, answering all their questions. And so Paul in Thessalonica, for example, Acts 17, verse 2 says, And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. See, Paul didn't just show up in town and say, Hey, Jesus, he's the Messiah, and then leave. He said, wanted you to know, and then he moved on. No, he, he understood there would be some questions about some of the wild claims he was making, namely that the Messiah has come, and that he died on a cross, and rose from the dead. Paul did declare to people that they needed to repent and believe in Christ, lest they perish. He was faithful to the gospel. But then he also stuck around to answer questions that people had, to reason with them, to contend. You know, people, when they turned hostile, when they understood what he was saying but hatefully scorned it, that's when he would move on. That's when he would go to the next town, to the next, to the Gentile. But otherwise, Paul was going to stick around and he was going to contend with people for, for weeks even, if needed, to share the truth, answer their questions, reason from the Scripture. Paul knew that such times of reasoning can be greatly encouraging to those who already believe and strengthens their faith builds up their faith to know, like, I already believe this stuff, but it, it, it does make sense. It is reasonable. 
And at the same time, Paul also knew that God uses such times of reasoning to to remove some of the roadblocks people have in their mind, which, which keep them from belief. And this still holds true today, which is why these times of reasoning through the scriptures in a little question-and-answer format, they're still profitable for us all. And I trust that most, if not all of you here, are already believing. And so I pray this time of going through some of your questions is just edifying for you. Builds up your faith, encourages your faith. And for others, may it even display to you the profound realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to get started then and go through some of your questions this week, next week as well. Now we just passed Christmas, so we might as well start with a Christmas-related question. first question we have is this. The person asked and said, it's mentioned a few times in the Christmas stories in the Bible that Mary and Joseph were engaged. Does it suggest anywhere in Scripture that they were married? actually married, or is it only Sue? This person wants to know if, in the Bible, it says anywhere that Mary and Joseph actually got married, or if it's just a Sue. You know, I've wondered that before, but probably gets you thinking, like, yeah, does, does it actually say they were really married? The short answer is that the Bible does not record the actual marriage ceremony of Mary and Joseph. So we don't know, like, who was on their invite list, or what they did for their reception, or anything, but but we do know that, yes, they truly got married. It's partly stated, and it's partly assumed. And the, the trickiness comes in dealing with a culture that has that had a different marriage ceremony, I guess you could say, or a different marriage custom. So let me explain. If you want to follow along, you can turn down to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. I think we're all well acquainted with the Christmas story by now. So I trust you know, Mary and Joseph, they were betrothed already when the angel came and visited them. The angel told them both separately of the coming of Jesus, but they're already betrothed. Luke chapter 1 tells of the angel's visit to Mary. Matthew chapter 1 tells of the angel's visit to Joseph, and that's where we want to go to find out more about their, their marital status. So Matthew 1, look at verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now already this verse tells you much about the relationship of Mary and Joseph. At this point they were betrothed, but they had not yet come together. This is a reference to the consummation of their marriage. So they were what we might call engaged. But the difference is in, in the Jewish culture, couples who were betrothed were actually considered married, even though they wouldn't consummate the marriage or live together for even upwards of a year. This is actually verified in the next few verses. So look at verse 19. It says, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now you might be thinking, I thought in verse 18 it, it said they were betrothed and they had not come together yet. But verse 19, here, Joseph, he's called Mary's husband. So, you know, how does that work? Are they married or are they not married? And also you have the phrase where it says he was going to send her away. That actually refers to divorce. So Joseph, he's thinking that Mary has gotten pregnant by another man. So he doesn't want to disgrace her, though, or see her stoned to death, which was the penalty for adultery back then. So he plans to discreetly divorce her. 
But how can he divorce her if they're not even married? Well, again, betrothed couples, they were not married, but they were betrothed, yet they were considered, for all purposes, married in that culture. This was a time of arranged marriages where the groom's parents would pay a dowry for the bride, and it was like entering into a binding contract between these two families that these two people were now going to be married. So much so that this agreement could not be annulled except by what was equivalent to divorce. Jewish custom allowed them to be considered husband and wife, even though they wouldn't live together or consummate their marriage for, for even a year. Such customs are described in the Old Testament, and they're confirmed and verified by later sources like the Mishnah and stuff like that. Now, this is where some assumption comes in, because we have to assume that Mary and Joseph were participating in the cultural customs of their day. The Bible doesn't say that. But at the same time, we've got no reason to think otherwise. In fact, the text seems to affirm this is the case, that they were betrothed, but it says they hadn't come together yet. And that's why Mary was surprised by the angel's announcement of her pregnancy, because she was still a virgin. Yet they can still be regarded as husband and wife, even though their, their marriage ceremony would take place later. And so the angel says to Joseph next, look at verse 20, It says, but when he, Joseph, when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. You see, in one sense, they were considered Mary such that, you know, back in verse 19, Joseph could be called her husband, but they still weren't fully married such that the angel tells them, no, don't be afraid to to take her as your wife, to, to finish it off, to seal the deal. Like I said, that the, the strangeness comes and just we're dealing with a culture that has different marriage customs than we do today. Now, all this being said, you still might be wondering, well, did they actually you know, go forward with it and, and really go through and, and get actually married? Well, yes, they did. Verse 24 says, And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. But kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Notice the phrase here in verse 24, that Joseph took Mary as his wife. That only makes sense in the context of that this was their actual marriage. They were already betrothed, so what else can that mean? But he sealed the deal and put a ring on it and really married her. They were uh, already betrothed, like I said. It also makes sense of the explanation in verse 25 where it says Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to Jesus. That also only makes sense in the context of, of marriage because when they were betrothed, well, of course, he was already keeping her a virgin. They, they weren't fully married yet. But after the, the visit by the angel, Joseph went ahead, followed through, actually married Mary. Now, we don't know the details, but they did get married but obviously they did not consummate their marriage until after Jesus was born. This, by the way, also explains the many references in the New Testament to the brothers and sisters of Jesus. He had many brothers and sisters. We should say half-brothers and and half-sisters. The Catholic Church tries to explain that part away. They like to think Mary was perpetually a virgin. But the simple fact is Mary and Joseph, they did indeed get married, 
And then after Jesus was born, they went on to have several other kids of their own. Now, speaking of the Catholic Church, this can tie into a second question here. Question number two for this morning. It says, is Pope Francis wanting to change the words of the Our Father a matter of interpretation or is it anti-biblical? Now, if, if you haven't followed the news, this might catch you a little off guard thinking like, wait, what? What's, what's going on here? But this actually is, is true in the sense that earlier this month, Pope Francis said that he wanted to change the text of the Our Father prayer. And we would call that the Lord's Prayer. It's known to Catholics as the Our Father prayer. Now, it's not really a Bible question per se, but it, it relates. So I think we can profit from the answer nonetheless, and, and I'll explain. If you're in Matthew 1, you can just turn the page to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. That's where we find the Lord's Prayer. We might even call it the Disciples' Prayer. He was teaching them how to pray. Again, this, this prayer is known to Catholics as the Our Father Prayer. And along with the Hail Mary prayer, it's, it's one of their two big liturgical prayers that they say over and over again in the rosary. And the phrase in question is in verse 13, where we, we know it's familiar to us as well. Christ said, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And recently, in an interview on December 6th, the Pope suggested changing the phrase lead us not into temptation, to do not let us fall into temptation. It was the proposed change that he, he made. You might wonder why. Why did he propose this change? Well, because the phrase, lead us not into temptation, can too strongly suggest that God actually leads us into temptation, which God does not do. And so the Pope commented, this is a quote now, he said, I'm the one who falls, but it's not God who pushes me into temptation to see how I fall. No, a, a father does not do this. A father helps us up immediately. The one who leads us into temptation is Satan. That's Satan's job, end quote. And therefore, the Pope said that a better translation would be, do not let us fall into temptation. Now, for, for Catholics, this prayer, the, the Our Father prayer, it's sacred for them. And, you know, when you have a prayer that's all about repetition, they say it over and over again. If you're going to make any changes to the wording of that prayer, it's going to be a big deal, as you can imagine. And then for, for us, for Protestants, many are wondering, like, well, what's he doing here? Is he trying to change the text of Scripture? Can he do that? Is this another abuse? What's going on? Now, I'll say this. If you were here this past October, for the whole month of October, we commemorated the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, which marked a breaking away from the Catholic Church because of its many corruptions in belief and in practice. Now, we're not... Catholic for many reasons. And we don't recognize the authority of the Pope for many reasons. And if you want to learn more about that, just download the five sermons from October on the, the five solas of the Reformation. Now, that being the case, though, I have to say here, in this instance, the Pope is actually not doing anything wrong. When Catholics violate Scripture, when they misinterpret Scripture, when they add to Scripture, you know, we take issue. That's a problem. But that's actually not what's going on here. It's more of a misunderstanding. This person asks a question wondering, and it's a fair question, you know, is the Pope changing the Our Father? Is it a matter of interpretation or is it just outright 
unbiblical or anti-biblical? The answer is neither. It's really just a matter of translation. He's really just suggesting a new translation. Here's the deal. The Greek text of the New Testament is inspired scripture. That's the original language of the New Testament. And thankfully, the Pope is not suggesting changing the Greek text. Rather, he's just talking about changing some translations of the Greek text, in particular, the English and the Italian. The the French and the Spanish, they already uh, reflect the changes he's talking about. But the Pope wants to see other translations follow suit. So in all, it's, it's actually not that big of a deal that the changes he's talking about. And I'm not one to defend the Pope too often. But at the same time, we, we want to be fair and reasonable. And this is, he's not actually doing anything wrong here. And it's, it's fine to say that. In fact, I would actually mostly agree with his proposed translation. The only difference is, this is not new to us. For Protestants, we've actually been talking about this for a long time, that this issue in Matthew 6. Protestants have understood this issue for a long time and and conversed over it for a long time. It seems like Catholics are just now getting around to figuring this out. Now, it is true that one could misunderstand the phrase, do not lead us into temptation, to mean that God, he's actively leading us into temptation. Otherwise, you know, why would we pray that? But it is also true that God does not do that. James, which we'll get to in February, James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. See, God certainly tests us, and he leads us into a period of trials and testing to prove our faith, but he does not tempt us to lead us to sin. Now, there it can be a little tricky because the Greek word for tempting and testing is actually the same. But we can simply say that, look, God never entices us to sin. He's never wanting us to sin. He puts us in the situations wanting to see us persevere, never fall into sin. Rather, enticement to sin comes from our own sinful flesh or the world or Satan. God surely allows temptations to come, as 1 Corinthians 10.13 says. But he also, like the verse continues, provides a way of escape that we may stand up under it. God wants us to endure temptation, not fall. And he helps us, not pushes us down. That's true. You know, what's also interesting, if you're looking at Matthew 6.13, where it says, deliver us from evil. That word evil in the Greek is in the definite So you could also take it to say, deliver us from the evil one. In fact, many modern translations actually have that, deliver us from the evil one, i.e. Satan. And so many take that route saying that, you know, Satan is the one tempting us and we're praying to God to to deliver us from that temptation. For example, the, the New Living Translation says, and don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. So in the end, there actually may be merit for a better translation of this verse. That's, that's fine. We'll leave that for the translators. But I'll, again, I'll say Protestants have been dialoguing over this issue for a long time. The Pope is, is only now just weighing in on it, which it's just fine. It's not as controversial as some might think. Again, thankfully, the Catholic Church is not known for changing the text of the Greek, the text of Scripture. They run into trouble when they add to the text 
with their rules and with their traditions, that's when we'll take issue. But for now, that's not the case. All right, well, here's the third question. This one will be very brief. Number three, what is the interpretation of husband of one wife in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12? You can turn there if you like, 1 Timothy 3, 12. What does it mean to say husband of one wife? Now, I actually just answered this question a little while ago when I preached a sermon on deacons. We had a couple of sermons on, on deacon ministry from the scriptures. But just to be thorough, I'll give it a quick mention here. That in 1 Timothy 3, Paul is listing several qualifications for elders and for deacons. Those are the two offices or roles of service in the church, elders and deacons. And both of these offices, you could say, elder and deacon, they share the same requirement given, namely that they must be the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. It's in verse 2 for elders. It's in verse 12 for deacons. In fact, the same requirement with the same wording is found in the elder list in Titus chapter 1, verse 6. So three different places we see this requirement that these, these men, elders and deacons, must be the husband of one wife. So whatever it means, it must be a big deal to God. It shows up several times. And, you know, when we preached through Titus several years ago, as well as in in these recent sermons on deacons several weeks ago, we found the same thing, that this phrase simply refers to being a one-woman man. A one-woman man, a.k.a. just a faithful spouse. That's the requirement. They must be a faithful spouse. Paul is not requiring elders and deacons to be married. He says husband of one wife, not husband of a wife. He's also not writing to exclude the widows or or remarried. Romans 7, for example, Paul makes clear that uh, death, the death of a spouse ends the marriage covenant and they're free to remarry or to serve as elders or deacons. And Paul is not trying to speak against polygamy, having multiple spouses, because that was already known to be wrong. That was a given. Instead, this is just a form of speech indicating marital faithfulness. If an elder or a deacon was married, they had to be faithful to their spouse. They had to be a one-woman man. The picture is of a man loving his wife and fulfilling his God-given role of husband to his wife. Just talking about faithfulness, relational, emotional, sexual faithfulness, in all categories, being faithful husband to his wife. That's the essence of this requirement. And that that will leave it there. Since I I preached on it a couple times now, if you want to learn more about that, just go a few weeks ago, get the sermon on deacons, and you'll learn more about that. All right, next question. We'll spend a little more time on it. It's a good question. Number four, could you explain the tabernacle and its parts? Also, I don't understand the table of showbread and what application it has to my Christian life. You never know what questions you're going to get. And that's what I love about doing these Q&As, give you all some paper and let you turn it in. You get uh, just, they're all over the map, but that's in a good way. It's, it's fun. And this is like a perfect Sunday school question. So we'll do some good old fashioned teaching here to answer this. Just about the tabernacle and its parts. And then, you know, is there some deeper meaning to the tabernacle and its parts or not? Well, first off, what is the tabernacle? The tabernacle was Israel's portable place of worship. So don't think of like a brick-and-mortar temple, like Solomon's temple. That came later. 
Rather, this was a tent, like this big old tent structure that Israel used to worship God, starting right after the Exodus. So think back to the Exodus. God was calling Israel to himself. He would be their God. They would be his people. And accordingly, in that time, God gave them his law, his word, and his will for for living as a holy nation before him. He gave them a priesthood and a sacrificial system that their sins could be covered and that he might dwell with them and fellowship with them. And then God also gave them a, a tabernacle, a place where these sacrifices would take place and a place where God would dwell with them and fellowship with them. God had no form or image, but through this structure, through the tabernacle, Israel could, could visibly see an indication that God was with them. He was in their midst. The tabernacle was at the very center of the camp of Israel. God was literally in their midst. That's the main idea. Exodus 25, verse 8 says, God said, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. This was God's way of showing he's there in their midst. So the tabernacle, in part, represented the closeness of God to Israel. He was dwelling in their midst. But at the same time, it also represented separation, some distance between God and the people because of sin. And so the tabernacle was walled off, that the tent itself had a wall around it. You couldn't just, you couldn't just walk in. This outer court was 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. Just picture almost exactly half of a football field. Almost exactly. And this area was enclosed by these large curtains hung on 60 pillars around the perimeter, forming basically like a wall. So you couldn't couldn't get in. Your average Israelite would only enter when they were bringing a sacrifice to be made right with God. And so although God was in their midst, there still was a sense of separation and distance. We can't go in there because we're not holy. God is, is perfectly holy. We're not. We can't. We can't go in there. Only the priests were really allowed to roam in the courtyard and then even in the temple or tabernacle itself. And so the layout, the layout itself made clear that God was in the midst, but you still were separate. And then in this courtyard, in between the entrance and then the tabernacle itself, there was the altar of sacrifice and the bronze laver of washing, like a big tub of water for washing. Those are almost like blocking the way into the tabernacle itself, showing that if you want to get to God's presence, you've got to go through sacrifice and washing. You need blood, you need water to make you clean if you're going to enter God's presence. Now let's talk about the actual tabernacle structure itself. This, uh, this movable tent was 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet tall. It was built of three walls made of acacia wood. The eastern wall was left open. Then the whole thing was covered by four layers of, of, of curtains and coverings. The outermost layer was made of, of seal skin, making it basically waterproof. Back then, I guess that's a good idea. Inside the tent, it was unequally divided in two. First, you entered the holy place or the sanctuary. This space was 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. And it contained three main pieces of furniture. Otherwise, a big empty room, but it had three main pieces of furniture. On the north wall was this table of showbread. 
the person was asking about. Just picture like a small coffee table covered in gold. The thing's made out of gold or overlaid in gold. And on it were placed these 12 cakes or loaves of bread in two columns of six. And they would sit there the whole week. No one would touch them. And at the end, at the Sabbath, the start of the new week, the priest would renew the loaves, put new 12 loaves there, and then the priest would eat the previous 12 loaves. Every week that happened. That's the table of showbread on the north side. Then on the south side was this golden candlestick or or lamp. This was made of of a talent of pure gold, huge, pure gold. It actually consisted of seven ornate lamps. Think of like a menorah, right? These were seven lamps, each supplied with two wine glasses of oil, keep them burning all night long. And finally, right in the middle of this first room was an altar, an altar of incense, where incense was just continually burning in that room. And this incense stood before the veil. And that brings us to the inner chamber of the tabernacle. The tabernacle, this back portion, so you get the holy place, and then behind was this room, which I think you all know, called the Holy of Holies. It was a little cube, 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. And this chamber contained just the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark primarily was the two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. And together, these represented God's covenant with his people. That's what kept God in their midst, his covenant with them. And itself, this room, the Holy of Holies, that was depicted as the actual dwelling place of God. That's where his presence was to be found, in this Holy of Holies. But there is even more separation, as I'm sure you also know, this this Holy of Holies was separated from the rest of the tabernacle by this huge veil, this double layer, thick curtain that even the priests could not enter. All the priests could could roam the courtyard and and when the time came, they would go into the tabernacle to serve at the the showbread or light the candlestick or whatever. They could never, ever, any of them, enter the veil and enter God's presence. Only, as you probably know as well, only the high priest could enter through the veil once a year on the Day of Atonement to sprinkle sacrificial blood onto the the mercy seat on top of the ark to, to make atonement for the sins of the people. So that's that's the basic picture of the tabernacle. There's, there's more details, but I trust you get it. You get the, the structure, the tent, the courtyard, the wall being in the midst of Israel. Now we're not quite done though because this person also wanted to know about the potential significance or symbolism behind the various parts of the tabernacle. And this person singled out the table of showbread in particular. Fair enough. Now, first off, I want to caution all of you in general, before I get to the answer. And I always do this. I want to do it again, to caution you all in general against looking for some, you know, some symbolism or hidden spiritual meaning behind every nook and cranny of the Bible. Like every number has to mean something or or everything has to mean something else than what it means. Many have found only error in doing so. For example, a famous example, when David slew Goliath, he picked up these five smooth river stones. And there have been countless interpretations as to what these five stones represented, like truth, honor, valor, courage, you know, loyalty, and whatever. 
In reality, he picked up five stones in case he missed. That's really the only reason. That's it. The point is, there's, there's nothing in the text that leads us to believe that there's any further significance to the five stones. The point is, we don't allegorize scripture. It's not an allegory. If there's symbolism, it's going to tell us. It's going to indicate from the text itself there's more going on here. And so we just want to be careful, and that's why I caution you. Now, sometimes there is deeper meaning, some, some significance under the text behind things. But the point is, the text itself has to make that clear and point us in that direction. And so if you're going to argue for some hidden meaning, you better make your case from the text. Otherwise, you can make anything mean anything you want, and that's what people do. That's not what we do. So that's my word of caution. In this case, it actually doesn't apply because, you know, I can't fault the person who asked this question. They did right. Because, indeed, the tabernacle does have some significance, some symbolic significance. That is actually very clear in Scripture. It's not something we make up. Scripture itself lets us know that God designed this thing for a reason. He was teaching us something in just the layout and the furniture. He was showing us something. So let's talk about that. Now, even back in Exodus, we find the tabernacle and its specific design were extremely significant, that there's more going on. So Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9, God said, Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I'm going to show you, as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. That is very interesting. God on Mount Sinai, he was revealing to Moses this heavenly pattern of the tabernacle. He says, like, build it like this. Here's this heavenly pattern for the tabernacle and its furniture. And he told him, this is how you're going to build it. That's, that's a little strange. Is God just giving him like this divine blueprint? Is that all, it's it, all this is? Or is there more going on here? There is more going on here. And it's confirmed in the New Testament. So now, if you want to follow along, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 8. That's where we'll be for a little while. Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews, the whole book builds this contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, was not a covenant of salvation. The New Covenant was. And accordingly, the New Covenant came with a better mediator, Christ himself, The Old Covenant featured a priesthood and a sacrificial system and a tabernacle, none of which could could save you. But each of these were matched in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, and fulfilled in Christ. They all found fulfillment in Christ. We find in, in the New Testament, Hebrews in particular, that Christ is now the great high priest. Christ is now the ultimate sacrifice. And we even learn that Christ is the true tabernacle of God. Before we get to Hebrews, do you remember John 1.14? Speaking of Christ, it says the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. That word dwelt, it literally says he tabernacled among us. Same word for the tabernacle. And so who is Jesus when he comes? He's Emmanuel, God with us. That's, that's the tabernacle. And he came to dwell with us. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's presence in the midst of his people once again. So Christ fulfills the tabernacle in a sense as well. 
Now, that being said, that's not all because in the Old Testament, God designed the tabernacle to also picture some realities of heaven. It's a little picture of heaven in a way. This sets up Hebrews chapter 8, which in the chapter confirms Christ is our great high priest. And he ministers now in heaven, which is the true tabernacle. Look at verse 1. He says, now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. From here, it actually goes on to quote Exodus 25, saying that the old priests, they served merely a copy and a shadow of the things to come, the heavenly things. Now, he's not saying that in heaven there's this literal building where God actually lives and he patterned the tabernacle after it. No. Rather, the point is that God was taking these heavenly realities and he gave Israel the structure and the system to represent them, that they could learn about heavenly realities from the tabernacle. This is how God so often reveals himself and teaches about himself. He uses object lessons. He takes the known and the familiar and uses them to reveal the unknown and the unfamiliar. And it makes perfect sense. This is how we learn as humans. And we have a toddler. How do you teach a toddler what a rectangle is? Well, you say it's like a square, but longer. How do you teach a toddler what a pear is? Well, it's like an apple, similar texture, not as sweet. Right? You take something they know and you use it to to expound on the unknown. And God does this all the time. So much of our knowledge comes just by such comparisons. And so God, he gave Israel something familiar, a tabernacle, a building, a place of worship. They lived in tents. Here's a big tent. And he was going to use it to reveal something unknown, namely these greater realities of heaven. And Hebrews 9 goes on to fill us in on what these greater realities of heaven were. So look at Hebrews 9 verse 1. Chapter 9 now, he says, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. After this, he goes on to summarize the, the, the tabernacle, the furniture, the operation, all that stuff. Now in verse 8, he goes on to explain some of the significance. Verse 8, he says, The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. What he's saying is, in the old covenant and all that went with it, it couldn't save These were all just symbols pointing to the need for a Savior, the need for a Redeemer, need for Christ, someone to come and who will cleanse us, not just our bodies, but our hearts, to make us new on the inside, to give us new hearts, to make us born again. So these were all pointing forward to that time, to this time of reformation. And, well, the time of reformation has come in Christ. So the next verse, verse 11 of Hebrews 9. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through 
the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So do you see the picture? Christ, he's the great high priest, as in the sacrificial system, and he enters into the holy of holies, the holy place, to make atonement for the sins of the people, like on the day of atonement. Only this time, as he enters in, he doesn't bring the blood of a, a, a goat or a ram. He brings his own blood, his own perfect blood. And he presents it before the mercy seat, the presence of God himself, the Father, to turn away God's wrath and to make satisfaction for the sins of his people. And Christ, he didn't do this in some 15-foot room. He did this in, in heaven itself. He entered heaven after the cross, the real dwelling place of God, to put away sins once for all, having obtained for us eternal redemption. Verse 24 confirms this. Look at verse 24. It says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And with this, as you reflect on Hebrews 9 and 10, really the, the significance of the tabernacle really comes into focus. The Old Testament tabernacle was designed according to this divine pattern of God's presence. It was given to be a small reflection of heaven on earth, God's meeting place with man. It symbolized closeness with God, God dwelling in the midst of his people, like we said, but also symbolized separation from God because of sin. Like we also said, you could not enter the tabernacle except through cleansing, through sacrifice and through cleansing. You have to be clean to enter God's holy presence. But now, Christ, this is what he's done for us. Through his complete sacrifice, the Holy Spirit cleanses our hearts that we may enter in. He makes us perfectly holy that we can be reconciled to God. Now, once you're inside the tabernacle, remember all that furniture? It all represents, in one way or another, fellowship with God. You're now in God's presence. You're in the building, and here's fellowship. So the golden lampstand provides light. The lamps, they're seven in number. We're careful with numbers, but seven almost always refers to perfection in the Bible. So the point is, God is light. He dwells in unapproachable light. And the point is, if you want to fellowship with this God, you've got to be in the light. There's no fellowship with this God in darkness. He dwells in light. You have to be in the light to be with him, to fellowship with him. Then there's the altar of incense. Several times in the book of Revelation, actually, it, it just tells us that the altar of incense pictures prayer, the prayers of the faithful rising up to God. Fellowship with this God is a spiritual communion, and that's characterized by prayer. Lastly, there's the table of showbread. You have the 12 pieces of bread, obviously representing the 12 tribes of Israel, or in other words, the totality of God's people. And the table itself represents just table fellowship with God. This is the closeness of a meal, which we would say has its New Testament counterpart in communion. But nonetheless, that this is a meal that nourishes us physically and spiritually. And, and, and that culture epitomizes 
communion, fellowship, having a meal, breaking bread with, with God himself in God's presence. It's the epitome of fellowship with God, which is what we were made for in the Garden of Eden, but that was lost. This is God saying, here's how you get it back through, through sacrifice, through tabernacle. I think these are all safe and clear connections we can make about the tabernacle furniture, knowing what we know about the, the purpose of the structure. The furniture inside was all about representing or depicting fellowship with God. However, in the Old Covenant, remember, that fellowship was limited to only the priests. You could never go in there. You could never eat that bread. I mean, just think about that. And, and let's pretend you were a priest. You enter in, it's your turn, it's your day, you're eating the bread, you're, you're in God's presence, you're fellowshipping with the Creator. But even then, you're still separated by that veil. That huge veil from God's actual presence still keeps you out. It's like having a meal with someone in another room. It's like, okay, I guess I'm close to you, but still not that close. You can't see him. You you can't enter in. This veil separates you forever. And if you're not the high priest, you'll never go inside. But the New Testament makes clear the significance of the veil as well, which I trust you know this part. The veil most certainly represents separation. But when Christ died on the cross, here's what Hebrews tells us. When he died on the cross, what did he do? He entered into this heavenly holy of holies, the presence of God himself. And he presented his own perfect blood before the Father to make atonement for sins, to to fully and finally put away all of our sins. And when he did so, what happened? The barrier was removed. With sins being completely atoned for, with, with all of our sin just now forgiven, the way to God's presence was now cast open. That the way to restored fellowship and communion with God, which was lost in the garden, where Adam and Eve were kicked out, it's been open. It's been restored. The bridge has been rebuilt. And so naturally, Matthew 27, 51 tells us that in the moment of Christ's death, what happened? That veil in the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom, itself signifying this was God's work, not man's. This was God's doing. So in all, you can see in this case, there is rich symbolism and significance present. It's explained by scripture itself. So much of the old covenant was meant to picture salvation. But the old covenant did not provide salvation. That was never the point. Salvation is not found in keeping rules and regulations and laws. Rather, it's found only in Christ. He's the better way. He's the only way. To be reconciled with God is the way, the truth, the life. He's the light of the world. He's the bread of life. Come down. He's the one who paid for our sins that we might fellowship with God again. And as he makes us new by faith, we become holy. He makes all of us priests. The priesthood of all believers, the New Testament teaches, now that we can all enter in. We're all made holy. We're all forgiven of sins, those who are in Christ. We're all made priests. So I guess that means we can all enter in to to the presence of God. And that's exactly what the last book, the second last chapter of the Bible says. I'll read for you that the picture of heaven we get in Revelation 21. Verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. 
And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among them, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. Down in verse 22 it says, I saw no temple in it. There's no temple, no tabernacle. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need for the sun or of the, uh, the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. See, this is our, our future, our hope, paradise restored. It's God with man again in perfect fellowship and harmony as in the garden god dwelling with adam and eve his very presence that's been lost the whole story of the bible is the story of that lost fellowship and then fellowship restored and in the final two chapters of the bible that's what you get god with man once again in perfect communion but it only comes one way and that's through the blood of the lamb the blood of christ you you still need the, the blood to be made clean to cleanse you to make you holy that you can be of those who, who enter in. And so I would even exhort you this morning to make sure that's you, that you have turned from your sins and counted on Christ as your Lord, your Savior. You see him for who he is. God come down, the, the perfect sacrifice. You believe what he did on the cross counts for you. And you're trusting in that atoning death to, to make you right. It's your only hope. God promises to those who believe to make you new and grant you entrance. So make sure that is you today. There can be no better way for you to end the year and and start a new year than by by turning to Christ today. And for all of us to remember what Christ has done for us, he enables us who believe in him to enter in. And although that's, that's our future hope, just just knowing this, it should change the way we live even now. Just to finish, let me read for you Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Hebrews 10, 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us Draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're going to end here. We'll come back next week. We'll pick up with some more Q&A questions. But these are perfect words for us to end on. And remember Christ, our Savior, our identity, what he's done for us and what it means for us, that in him we've been cleansed and washed. We've been saved. We've been reconciled to God once for all by his blood. Therefore, even though we're still waiting to to truly enter in, therefore, what should we do now? We'll hold fast 
and draw near and then encourage one another to press on and to make sure you enter in, that you persevere in the faith until the end and you follow Christ. These are admonitions that we as the church, we still need each and every day, a fitting way for us to end our time and the year. And so I pray that these words and this little study encourages you to just and spurs you on to remember him and to live for him who lived and died for you that you might enter in. Let's pray in remembrance. Lord God, we, we thank you for this little steady time this morning, a little different but still edifying, and, and we're, we're just delighted to finish by reflecting on Christ, our Savior, the one whom we ultimately remember, whom we gather to, to worship and to praise. We thank you for your word and all the rich lessons it has and how you teach us in so many ways, and ultimately for, for the, the, the promise of salvation you've given to us in your word and, and in Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, who came down to take away the sins of the world, who died on the cross and rose from the, and, uh, rose from the dead to, to put away our sins, who entered into the Holy of Holies to, to make us clean once for all. These are, these are lofty truths, Lord, and I pray they don't escape us, that we leave here this morning remembering them and meditating on the fact that we're a people bought with a price. Our holiness came with a price. Our salvation came with a price. And so let us respond in worship, in praise, and in renewed holiness. I pray this new year, all of us, our lives will be marked by a greater holiness and a fervor and just in loving you and serving you and wanting to be with you and with your people. That we likewise would not forsake the assembly, that we would just be delighted to be in your church, your, your bride, uh, ready and waiting for you and living for you. So I pray that that marks us all in the upcoming year and each and every day of our lives. To you be the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.